Are we good? All righty, awesome. Can you bring me down just a smidge, if that would be good? My own voice distracts me. I don't know about you guys, but I hear it in my head and out of the speaker and coming back off the wall, and I get, ah! This morning, um, you know, in, in the reading that Aaron did, one of the things he spoke of was, whoa, <laughs> was this, um, I'll go this way, is that right? <laughs> what um, what uh, Aaron was speaking of was a transition that the lighting of the pink candle signifies a change in, in perspective and a change in aim and goal. That we go from mourning and repentance, the recognition of our sin and the reason for Jesus coming, and we uh, allow that then to turn to rejoicing as, we be, as the light begins to dawn, as it becomes brighter, as we see what it is that Christ is doing, who he is, and what he's going to accomplish. That's what we're doing. And what I love about this is twofold in regard to what we see visually. There's a contrast. There's a contrast from the purple to the pink. There's a contrast from half the light becoming three quarters of the light. There's a contrast from the mourning to the rejoicing. And the contrast occurs to allow us to see what was and what will be. What is before we meet Jesus and what happens after we meet Jesus. So I'm gonna ask you to grab your notes. The front page is the page with all the paragraphs. We're gonna go down this very quickly. And then we're gonna go into the text that was read earlier. So what we're going to see, and you heard it in Psalm 32, it said, blessed is the one, blessed is the one, happy, joyful, that God has done this great thing for me. So in, Galatians, or in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve taught us to hide. We read this a few weeks ago. When Adam and Eve had sinned and they had heard, heard God walking through the, through the, through the garden, it, is, it says that they hid. And so they taught us how to hide, how to hide from God as if we could, to hide in our shame. We see and experience guilt and how it depresses and debilitates and tells us we are not worthy, that we should be afraid and should conceal and not admit our sin, to run from God and bury deep inside our wrong, hoping that no one will see. That's the condition we find ourselves in pre-God. Not pre-God as in not knowing God and knowing God exists because we've been made in his image and he is seen in all creation, but knowing God personally. Recognizing who we are and what we are and what we've done and realizing that this God is one from whom to hide. That's what we've been taught. When we choose this ancient way of hiding, masking, keeping our sin from God and others, we begin to wallow and sink further and further into the muck and the mire of our feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and self-loathing. Defeated, we remain trapped in doubting, convinced that if God knew and if anyone else knew, if anybody else knew, this is our plight. And we were made to think that this is our deserved fate. And on one hand, we're right. In that state, we are helpless and hopeless. We are mired and trapped, sinking without hope of extracting ourselves. And we can't. 
We're destined for more of the same. And so we hide and sink and wilt and wish that someone, something would help, relieve, rescue, forgive our sin and our sinfulness. And then comes Jesus. Our help and our hope. When Jesus comes on the scene, he offers the very thing our hearts and our minds and our souls are crying out for. Relief. But not a temporary relief, but a real, deep, actual release. A relief not only from the one-time sin that causes me to feel as I do, but also and especially a release from that deep down need. That desperate need we have for someone to accept us. To help us, to know us, to know me, who I am and what I am. To know what I have done. And to love me in spite of me. And that is just what Jesus did. And that is exactly what he does. He comes and he loves and forgives and releases and relieves. And we find in him joy. Joy and freedom. Freedom from that judging, condemning voice that echoes from deep down inside. And when did this come? When we stopped hiding. When we stopped running. When we let Jesus see and know and hear. When seeing him, we finally said, here I am. Save me. Psalm 42 and 3 says this. He lifted me out of the, of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground, on a rock, and steadied me as I walked along. And now we find joy and a season and a reason to rejoice. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Even after Jesus, when we sin, even those of us who have a relationship with God in Christ, when we sin, we very often forget, and sometimes we revert to what was. We hide, or we pretend, or we mask. Forgetting that sweet release we've been afforded. And reminded, and reminded that we must be. So this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like to open to Psalm 32, if you would. You, we've heard it read, so I'm not going to take too much long, too long in the reading. But what I do want to do is I want to break it down, and what I do want us to do is I want us to see this contrast, and I want us to sense the contrast. I want us to feel the contrast. Because although joy is far deeper and more rich than happiness... The word blessed has both woven through it. That I have this, this deep abiding joy in God. That everything that I was is no longer and I am new. That everything that I had done is now forgiven and I've give, been given a clean slate. And not only so, that what we just read in the, in the previous psalm, he walks me along. He guides me on a path. Psalm 23, on a path of righteousness. That we would now learn to love like he does and receive the love he has for us. So we're in Psalm 32, we're gonna start at verse one. You can follow along in the notes if you'd like. The, the, what I did was I took the Hebrew and I kind of broke, broke it down in the notes. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord God, that you do know us and you meet us where we are. And in meeting us where we are, you grab our hearts and you draw us to yourself. 
And you do this at a time when we could not do it for ourselves. That our plate was true and real. And there was no way for us to fix ourselves. May we rejoice in you, Lord God, and what you have done and what you do and what you will do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in verse 1 of Psalm 32, and it says, Blessed or happy is he or she, are they, whose transgressions are what? forgiven. Now, I want to go to this word transgression, because sometimes we see this as the same as sin. And really, in the Hebrew, there's, it's got two different meanings, and there's a reason for this. Because in the context of any relationship, we tend to hurt each other in different ways. And what I want us to see is this idea of sin and this idea of transgression and everything that we've done and what God has done on our behalf has nothing to do with a legal requirement. It has nothing to do with religious diligence has nothing to do with trying to be perfect. It has to do with relationship and how we function in a relationship and how we allow ourselves to be loved and to love. And so the word transgression, transgression is more, it's different than sin. Transgression means to actually rebel. It means to fight against. The word transgression, if you look at your, if your notes, it says to revolt, to rebel, or to breach trust. I want us to take that into consideration for a minute. The word transgressions mean that we're revolting against that, which some, either against someone or what somebody is offering us or doing on our behalf. And in the context of a relationship that's already established, we're breaching each other's trust. Have you ever been in a relationship where you transgressed? Where for some reason you rebelled against the relationship and doing so you broke the trust of the relationship? It is true in every one of our relationships that we have the ability to rebel and revolt and to break the trust of the one we love and who loves us. And we do this with God. I think God uses this word very, very purposefully for us to recognize the fact that he desires a relationship with us. He pursues that relationship and sometimes we rebel against it. Sometimes we push his love to the side. You ever have somebody wanna love you and you don't wanna be loved by them? Anybody? Anybody ever just feel like, you know, you're in a position where, you, you know, you know this person loves you and you know they have, you, they have your, your best interest in mind and yet you still, ah, mm, no, psst. I said this once before and I'm, I'm reluctant to say it again because it backfired on me. But my love language is physical touch. I'm a huggy guy. I'm a shaky hand guy. But you know what I'm best at? Giving it, not getting it. As long as I'm the one initiating the hug, everything's Okay. The minute somebody else wants to initiate the hug, I go like this, ah, oh, okay, uh, 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 right? Why is that? Because sometimes, for whatever reason, when somebody's trying to love us, we have a tendency to want to hold them at, at bay like this. It makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel like I'm out of control. It makes me feel like, ah, I have to, I have to what? I have to trust this person that their motives are pure. So it is with God. It's the exact same thing. We, talk, we want to talk a lot about loving God. We even talk a lot about God loving us. But it's really hard to receive his love. It's really hard to take it when he offers it. And so sometimes we revolt against it. Sometimes we hold it at bay. Because also when we give and receive love, we find out there's a responsibility in the love toward the one we love. 
especially if we receive their love, because now I'm owing to them. Does this make sense? All of this is packed in this word transgression. That when the psalmist said this, he was saying, listen, God wants this loving relationship with you, and you do this. And it's natural. Especially when we've revolted, especially when we have rebelled. It's hard to receive gracious love from our Father when we know deep down in our heart we have held him at bay. But what's really cool about this is the rest of the line. Take a look at it with me. And this is where joy comes from. Blessed or happy is the one or deep-seated joy is inside the one whose transgressions are what? They're forgiven. That God does not hold that against us. That despite the fact that he's reaching out to love us, and that's what he did with Jesus, right? And in John 1, it says that Jesus came to that which his own, and his own would not what? Receive him. They rebelled. They revolted. They didn't, they breached the trust. This is hard. God knows it's hard. So you know what he does? He forgives us and continues to pursue us. And see, and this is where joy is. And as we turn the corner in Advent, as we transition from mourning over our sin and recognizing what it is that Jesus would have to do on our behalf, we turn the corner into joy because now we see what he's doing. And whether we like it or not, we're getting a gift. And the gift is Christ Jesus here on earth among us. Then the question is whether we'll receive the intimacy of the love, making ourselves vulnerable is to actually receive it. And when we do, all is forgiven. So we go on. Look what it says next. It says, blessed is he or happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now this word sin has a little bit of different, little different connotation, and it's to offend the one who loves us. It's to offend them. You ever been in a relationship where you were offended by somebody you loved? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, we got brides looking at husbands like this is just a normal way of life. <laughs> but isn't it so? <laughs> Sin means to offend. It means to hurt the feelings of. I have been offended. I've also offended. What's really awesome about our God, despite the fact that we might offend him from time to time, that we may sin against him, is he covers it up. Look what it says here. Blessed is one, or happy is one, who sin the Lord does not what? What's it say? Does not count against them. Or the, the, another part of this word is to cover it. In 1 Peter, it says that we are to love one another, and in loving one another, we cover a multitude of sin. We conceal sin. Not to condone it and allow it to continue to happen, but to protect and dignify while they work through the repentance, while they work through getting it right. This is what God does. First, he covers his eyes to it because he doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't count us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, you know who, who initiated that? God. And he does not keep a record of the wrongs of his children. He covers them. He conceals them. In fact, the psalmist goes on to say that he throws them away from himself as far as east is from west. That in Christ, when we have received that relationship, that love, that grace, that forgiveness, that our Father covers it. Says no more. And blessed is the man, joyful is the man, deeply rooted is that man who sees such a thing, 
that I have rebelled and yet you have forgiven me and I have offended you and you have not held it against me. He doesn't take offense despite my offense. Isn't that amazing? And it's something for us to learn in the context of our, our relationships. Have you ever taken offense by, of somebody in a relationship with you? Especially when you didn't really have to. And then you just kind of hold it like this. Mm. 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 No. But I'm, no, Mm-mm. no. But I didn't, no. Mm. I still have husbands and wives looking at each other. So blessed is he whose transgressions or rebellion or breach of trust is forgiven, who allows them to come back in, whose sins are concealed and covered and tossed away. Happy or blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not what? Count against them. And whose spirit is no what? Deceit. Now this is a tough one. This is a tough one. Whew. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I am not always truthful or honest. So there's a phrase I want us to kind of grab here. I can speak truth without being honest, but I cannot be honest and not speak truth. What do I mean by that? Everybody's looking at me like, what are you, crazy? Yes, I am. But here's the deal. I may, see, I may speak the truth. Let's say, I'm, let's say, keep it something simple and concrete. I may speak the truth that God loves you, and at the, at the whole time, appearing as though I believe it, when in fact, deep down in my heart, I don't. So although I may be speaking truth to you, and even appear as though I believe that it's true, I'm not necessarily being honest in expressing the fact that I don't actually believe it's true. So I can speak truth and not be honest. I can tell you that vest looks really good on you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> right? You think it looks good, so I'm going to affirm you, dude. Yeah, that vest looks really good. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm a vest wearer, so please, do not take offense at that. But what you can't be is honest and not tell the truth. Because when you're honest, you're the expression of who you are and what you are. And so when you speak truth, is an expression of what you believe to be true and who you are as a person. And so when he speaks of not being a person with deceit in their heart, he's not talking about lying necessarily, although certainly that fits in the category. What he's talking about is somebody who's not true to themselves, or true to, the, true to themselves, whether it be personally or in the context of the relationship, they're not true. So I can say a truth and not be true, but it's hard for me to not be honest if I'm being true. And so God is saying, listen, I want you to have confidence in me to such a degree that you know that even when you rebel, I'm going to forgive it. And even when you offend me, I'm not going to take offense. And that should give you confidence to be totally you when you walk up to me. And know that no matter what transpires between me and you, I got gotcha. you. That's what he's trying to develop in us. And when we can be true with God, we can learn to be true with ourselves. And we, when we can learn to be true with ourselves, we can learn to be true with who? Each other, others. Because how we treat God tends to be how we treat ourselves. Or how we treat ourselves is how we treat God. And how we treat those two, we treat others. 
And God says, I want you to be true. So have this confidence, have this joy, that even when for whatever reason you breach my trust, whatever reason I could take offense, I don't, I cover those things, I forgive those things. So that when you come before me, you can be your honest self. And be confident that I love you anyway. In spite of your behavior, I love you. In spite of your attitude, I love you. Even in spite of your untruth, I love you. So learn to be true. Does this make sense? This is important because this is how we learn to live healthy lives. Healthy with God and healthy with self and healthy with one another. When we will receive and accept what God, who God is and what he's done and how he's made us to be and that in spite of me, he loves me. And I have total confidence to not only speak the truth, but be true to that truth. And that's what he wants for us. And listen, what does he say? Blessed is that person. Happy is that person. Deeply seated in joy is that person because they have utter confidence before God. That he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he'll do in spite of my own behavior or attitude or view of self. But I'm happiest when all this happens. So look what it goes on to say. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. They are true to who they are. Look at verse 3 now. This is really important for us to get because this is the turning point. Watch. When I kept silent... When I did not acknowledge something, well, I'll read the whole thing because it'll actually speak for itself. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I held things in, when I did not speak to God about them, when I tried to hide, hide it myself and conceal. Now let's go back to Genesis 3 for a minute mentally. If you don't know the story, Adam and Eve sinned, right? They ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And in doing so, they figured out they were naked. And once they figured out they were naked, they were ashamed. And when they heard God coming, they hid because they were ashamed. And in the meantime, they had tried to conceal themselves with fig leaves. Uh, probably not a great resource. Not real durable. Not very long-lasting. Probably not the most comfortable cloth to be against your skin. It gets all dry and crackly, itchy, ooh. I want us to understand something. God has that part of the story in there on purpose because he wants us to see the futility of trying to hide ourselves and cover ourselves and conceal ourselves. That's a big deal. Because that's our propensity. What had Adam and Eve just done? They recognized they were naked. They were ashamed. They ran and hid themselves and tried to conceal in a completely futile manner. So God in his grace, who said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die, didn't kill them, but in fact, concealed them taking the skin of an animal and giving them appropriate covering. And apparently did not hold it against them enough to kill them, but to allow them to continue to live and to be fruitful and to multiply. Now their life was shortened, death did come, but not immediate as they imagined, because God covered their transgression and their sin. They had breached his trust, and yet he continued to pursue. He knew where they were. 
He knew they were naked, and yet he called out, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Well, we've hidden. Well, let me help you. Isn't that beautiful? That is our God, and that's his grace. And happy is the one who receives what God offers. Happy is the one, deeply seated is the one who receives that forgiveness and that covering, who receives that love and affection, who is willing before God to be true to themselves because they have that confidence. So we read on. So when I kept silent, when I tried to hold this in, my bones wasted away guilt and shame and anxiety. And through my groaning all day long, anybody ever been in that position where you know you've done something wrong and it's really hot on you and you just, inside you're just burning up and you just, you just sigh all day. You think you got away with it for a little while and you get busy at work and you get distracted a little bit and then you have that moment of silence where it goes, and it just overwhelms you again. You're like, ah. Oh. Anybody? Or is it just me? Okay, all right, I'm not the only one. There are three others. Okay, so here. <laughs> the psalmist is writing a very real thing here. The Holy Spirit knows exactly how we're designed and knows exactly how we work and knows exactly what happens when we sin and how we feel when it happens. And so he's making sure that he's encouraging us about everything that God will do in his pursuit of us and his covering of us and forgiving us and is giving us life. And this is what he's saying. And this is worthy of rejoicing. So again, verse three, it says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. That, that weight of guilt, that weight of, anybody ever feel that? You know, most of us though, we feel like that's God being mad at us. Oh, he's mad or he's disappointed in me. Well, let me dispel that right out of the chute. You know, there's absolutely no place in scripture where God talks about being dis disappointed of his children. Not a single place. You know why? He ain't. Being disappointed means that you expected something and didn't get it. And God already knew. He can't be disappointed. Now, somebody read out loud the verse we just came from because I forgot it. Go ahead. Where was it? Oh, your hand was heavy upon me. Yeah. <laughs> so we think that's God being mad at us or being mean to us. or he's No! That's his saying, I'm here. Our relationship is broken. You're in peril. Come to me. It's like a good bit of discipline for a child. If, you, if we discipline our children out of love and they know it's out of love, having a trusting relationship with us, that we do forgive them for their transgressions and we do cover their sin and not remind them of it and we do love them through it and we discipline them appropriately, you know what most children will do? Come running to you for the hug. They will recognize what it is you're doing for them innately and they'll, they'll just sink right into your chest. Why? Because that's what God put in us. Because he knew we would fail and fall. He knew that this would happen. And his desire is that when we feel his heavy hand upon us, that we wouldn't run away from him, but we would run toward him and get the hug. Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And thank you for reminding me how much 
you loved me, that you would not leave me wallowing in my garbage, but you would lift me up and take me out of the mud and place my feet on a rock, and you would continue to remind me of your presence and not treat me as my sin desires, but in fact have compassion upon me. Do you see that? That is worth rejoicing over. That is the truth. So we read on. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as the heat of the summer. I, couldn't, I could hardly carry myself. Look at verse five. Here's the beauty. Ready? Here's the beauty. Then I did what? I acknowledged my sin to you. And what, you know what I love about the word acknowledge? It meant that I refused to see it before. I refused. But what happens if he allows us to remain in our sin? We slowly just melt away. Our relationships all begin to fall apart. We don't lose our relationship with God, but it's not effective and it's not productive. And it certainly isn't joyful. And that means our testimony begins to fall apart because the joy that should be exuding from us is buried deep down inside underneath our sin. So God has put his heavy hand upon us to get us to acknowledge it so he can get, it's like if you go to the, um, you know, you go have an MRI and the doctor finds something and, you, and, and he tells you, okay, here's what's going on. And you go, nah, mm-mm. Well, no, it's right, no, mm-mm-mm. Yeah, but if, no, thanks, but no thanks. And you walk out. Then six months later, you come back and you ask him, why in the world about don't I feel good? Mm, I tried to tell you. And we wasted six months of treatment, six months of potential health, six months of recovery, six, six months of whatever it was that we needed. And God is saying, listen, I'll never not love you, but I want you to live a fruitful life, an effective life, a productive life. I want you to live a life of joy. And when I put my heavy hand on you, acknowledge it, recognize it for what it is. I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not angry at you. I love you. I'm grieved with you. Walk with me. I will help you and you will recover your life and your health and your effectiveness. Isn't that amazing? This is the prescription right here. Look what it says. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not, and you did not cover up my iniquity, and, and I did not cover up my iniquity. In other words, I stopped trying to hide it from you. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you did what? You forgave me of the guilt of my sin. And what he's saying is immediately, woof, it's gone. See, we think we're protecting our heart from God when we don't acknowledge our sin, when we refuse to feel that heavy hand. When in fact, what he's trying to say, if you will just acknowledge it, I will prove my love to you. If you just acknowledge it, I will show you my healing power. That's why it says in James, confess your sin to one another and you will be healed. This is what he's talking about. This is beautiful. Now, turn to Romans 5 and we'll close here because this is when he did it. And this is just nuts, if you ask me. Now, in your notes, there's, there's not as much scripture as usual, but you can go back and you can walk through this stuff, and it'll help, it'll help deepen this and root it. But we're in Romans chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 1. You heard it read before, but I want to emphasize a couple points before we go. You ready? 
And again, you, there's some Greek in the notes. You can follow along as we go if you'd like, but I'm just going to rattle down it. So we're in Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. You everybody there? I'm not in a hurry. We'll take our time. Well, not that much time, but a little <laughs> long enough for you to find Romans. You find it. You ready? All right, we're going to start at verse 1. Look what it says. It talks about, now the chapters three and four talk about Abraham being saved by faith. In other words, what, what allowed Abraham to receive a promise from God way back in the ancient days, he put his faith in God, and in that he was saved. He trusted God. He believed God, and he was confident that God would do what God said he would do. Same faith that we put in Jesus Christ. Abraham had put in God. Right? So that's what that word therefore means. I, I, we're going to start with therefore, and if you don't know what's before, you don't know what's therefore. Okay, so what the therefore is therefore. Okay, so here we go. You ready? It says, therefore, since we have been, what's that next word? Justified. Now, this is a really important word. Justified means declared innocent. Been made righteous. Now, in 1 Corinthians, it says something really beautiful. It says that Jesus became sin on my behalf. That he who knew no sin, he who had never sinned, he who lived perfectly, became sin by nature, took my nature upon himself, died on the cross, and then now he is my righteousness. And it's a beautiful exchange. This is an exchange. That Jesus exchanges his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness for my sinfulness. And in doing so, he makes me right with the Father. Because now the Father doesn't see me as Anthony. He sees me as Anthony through the lens of Jesus. I am now right with the Father. If you're taking notes, put Ephesians chapter 2 right here. Ephesians chapter 2. So that word justify is really important because what he's doing is he's saying exactly what the psalmist was saying, but he's using more technical language. He's using a legal term. So where the psalmist is writing this beautiful poem of, hey, your transgressions will be covered and your sin, or it will be forgiven, your, your, your sin will be covered. And, 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 and if you'll just acknowledge your sin, God will do this. Paul uses one word to describe it. And Jesus, doing what he did, he, make, he, make, he justifies us. He makes us right before the Father. Boom. And now we can have confidence to be what? True. To be True to be who we are in Christ, to live a life of righteousness. We can do it now. So here we go, ready? Band, go ahead and get in place if you wouldn't. Please don't be distracted as they move. Here we go, so here we go. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God through faith, this believing and this confident belief in who Jesus is and what he did, we now have what? Peace with God, a tranquil heart, a tranquil soul before God. In other words, we have no fear. We do not have to be afraid of God or anything, or, or anything about God. Because we are now connected to him and completely and utterly innocent, holy, standing before him. So we've been justified through faith. We now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access to our Father by faith into this grace, this free gift of life in which we now stand. And look what we do next. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That eager expectation and confidence of who God is and what he's done and what he will do. Not only so, but we also now rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. We have to cheerfully endure those circumstances knowing that God will work this out. And that perseverance develops in us character or godliness. We begin to look more and more like Jesus. 
In other words, we begin to live out our righteousness. The very righteousness that we are before the Father, we begin to live out as we persevere, cheerfully endure. And it builds our character. And as our character builds, our hope increases. Well, why? Because we're, we are now receiving that which he's promised. And we can see it. First Peter puts it this way. When we go through trials and he, he helps us through them, we're refined and Jesus is revealed in us. That's what he's saying. That character is looking more like Jesus. So all of a sudden, down the road, we find ourselves acting and sounding and behaving more and more like Jesus. My life is becoming effective. My sin is being washed away. I'm becoming more and more true to the self that God has made me. This is, he says, rejoice in this. Rejoice in your sufferings because your sufferings produce this in you. So, he says, rejoice in your sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. And that hope does not disappoint us. Why? Well, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so we have the Spirit reminding us of who and whose we are, empowering us and enabling us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still what? Powerless. In other words, we could not extricate ourselves on our own. We could not get ourselves out of the mire and the muck by ourselves. When we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still his what? His what? While we were still his enemies. Not merely tangled up in our own stuff, but actually opposed to God, in conflict with God, hostile toward God. He died for me. That's when he did it. When I was helpless, when I was hostile, when I was offensive, when I had rebelled and rejected, God continued to pursue me. And when he caught me and I allowed myself to be caught, I got saved. I was forgiven and I was made righteous. And that's true. And that's worthy of joy. Amen? Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your grace, your incredible gift of life. That, Lord God, that in spite of us, you come after us. And while we were hostile toward you, you did not give up on the pursuit. And, Father, for those of us who have received this gift, I pray that we would find great joy in this. That we would see the contrast of what we were and what we are now. And the hostility we were suffering with prior and now the great joy and connection we have now. That we would now live in such a way as when we do sin and we begin to forget about what it is you've done and we revert back to those things we used to do in hiding. That we would come before you confidently and recognize that you desperately want us to acknowledge the breach in our relationship so that you might repair it. And Father, for those of us who have not received this, who are still holding you at bay, who are reluctant to receive, we pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be open to you and to receive that love. That we would acknowledge our sin and our separation from you. And we allow Jesus to be the light of, of the world to us. And life in the midst of darkness, in the midst, in, in the midst of death. And we would receive from you what you offer.
eternal life with the Father. So today, Lord God, may we walk with you in such a way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. God has told us in his word that we have not because we ask not. With that in mind, let us pray, Mosaic. Father, we ask you for eyes to see and ears to hear. Dear God, may we see all that you have given us with fresh eyes this week, birds that sing among the trees and the branches, the earth set on its foundation that can never be moved, plants that man can cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, soil that is filled with nutrients that our bodies need. Oh, great God, may we look to all that surrounds us and be filled with praise all of this creation that screams your existence, all of this, and then your arrival as a baby in the manger. Oh, Father, give us hearts to understand and receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>